stepping up here, Robbie says, hey, fire off a good one. <laughs> On every, nearly every Sunday morning, as I'm leaving the house uh, to get down here, and I usually come early, that's kind of on purpose to be prepared, but uh, Tammy will often say, and this is going to embarrass my wife, but I think this is a good one, she says, hey, 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 she says, good luck and knock them dead. I said, that's not what I'm trying to do. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to knock them dead, but beings we're huge baseball fans, and uh, I know what she means, and, uh, and I appreciate it. Hey, if you're new here to Addie, we really welcome you. And, um, and uh, we don't believe by accident that anybody shows up, or th- we don't believe that anybody shows up on accident. We believe that God uh, puts people where he puts people, and uh, we're glad that you're here with us and uh, fellowshipping here. And, and uh, even if it's your first time, even if today's like day number one for you. Uh, last week we had a, just a wonderful opportunity. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to any message, really. You can look at it on our website or whatnot, but uh, last week we had our, one of our uh, couples, actually both couples were here, our missionaries to Ukraine, uh, but last week it was uh, Ruslan and Sharon uh, Borodin, they spoke last week, and uh, we need to continue to pray for them. Uh, Ruslan's headed back in a couple weeks, uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty for him and his travel. Uh, uh, Chief amongst those uh, beyond his safety there is uh, will they let him into the country on his U.S. passport? Um, the last time he went this last year, and he's Ukrainian, he used at the last, kind of the last second, he felt the Lord prompt him to use his U.S. passport, which gave him then uh, an, a, a unique exit strategy to, c- to get back out of the country. And, um, and that's why he was here. But continue to pray for them, continue to pray for the nation of Ukraine. The things that are going on there, it's a very fluid situation there in Eastern Europe, as, uh, as you all know. Uh, there's a lot of things going on that, uh, that we need to continue to pray uh, about and pray for the people that the Lord would draw. The people there in Eastern Europe to himself, regardless of whether it's Ukrainian or Russian, Poland, uh, Polish people, whatever it is or whoever it is. Uh, today we're going to start out, it's a good day to be here because today we're going to start out a brand new series. Um, I'm really excited about this. Uh, I've never preached through this particular book of the Bible before and I've referred to it a lot, but uh, today we're going to start a brand new series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and it's not because that's my name. <laughs> um, so let's not get that confused. Let's get that straight from the beginning. Uh, but Mark, or better known as he's known, uh, better known as John Mark, uh, John kind of being the Jewish. Uh, a lot of times in the first century, he kind of had a a a a, uh, a Jewish name and a and a Greek name kind of combined in a sense uh, in that culture. Uh, John being the being the uh, Jewish side, Mark being the Greek side of it. But uh, John Mark is a very interesting uh, figure in the early days of Christianity. And I want to go through, I want to just kind of in a way, before we really dive into the Gospel of Mark, I want to kind of introduce you to this guy because he has a really a fascinating story uh, and storyline, even though he's really kind of, kind of an obscure um, a figure biblically, um, he really shows up huge through the course of, of history and, um, and especially in regard to the Bible. The little bit of bio on him, he first shows up on the scene there and I have some kind of some bullet points up on the screen, uh, 
But he shows up first in the Bible, in the book of Acts. Now, granted, <clears throat> Mark was written about 60 A.D. The Gospel of Mark was written, they figure, somewhere in the mid-50s to 60 A.D. So, so he hasn't written any of that, even though it's first in your Bible, in the way that it's uh, arranged in the Bible. Uh, he first shows up on the scene in Acts chapter 12. So think chronologically with me a little bit. He shows up on the scene there in Acts chapter 12 is his first appearance, and it's uh, the story, it's 12, tw- chapter 12, verse 12, and it's the whole scene of where, uh, where Peter's been imprisoned, and then God shows up, and boom, the prison gates are open, and God says, get out of here, Peter, you know, go, and so Peter escapes being in prison for preaching the gospel, and he comes to the house of this lady Mary, and it's not Jesus' mother, uh, but this lady Mary, and she is the mother of John Mark. She's the mother of John Mark, and this became, and he was there. So this become this is the like the 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 meeting for John Mark, perhaps. Now, there's other kind of some shadowy references that Mark may be talking about himself as like a younger teenage guy in the Gospel of Mark. And we'll get to that in coming weeks. But this is the this is really the moment they say the beginning of a long friendship between the Apostle Peter, and uh, John Mark. And then a few uh, verses down in the same chapter, chapter 12 of Acts, John Mark ends up joining Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary trip. He ends up joining them as the Apostle uh, Paul uh, set out to take the gospel into the uh, Gentile world, and he's part of that team, part of that of that group that traveled. Then in Acts 13, he's also mentioned as, uh, as one of Paul's assistants. So here is a, as a young Jew, Jewish guy, he's kind of slid in, has become one of the Apostle Paul's assistants in Acts 13, verse 5. A few verses later, a few verses later in verse 13, it states where John Mark departed their company in Perga and returned to Jerusalem. And uh, this abandonment of the mission would later create a ton of tension between Paul and Barnabas. And that tension is picked up down the storyline of ways in Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. Paul and Barnabas have this superheated disagreement because the Apostle Paul, or Apostle Paul didn't want John Mark to be reinserted in the next journey. And Barnabas did. And, and so there was this tension, this struggle, and the word says there they, they got into a very heated argument over it and the result was is that Paul took Silas and headed to Syria access and Barnabas took John Mark and headed to Cyprus so a couple questions arise Uh, why did Barnabas defend John Mark like he did have you ever asked yourself that question why was Barnabas so so uh, uh, adamant about defending Mark in this situation the other question is, is did Paul and John Mark ever really reconciled the relationship. So on the first question, we, only, we have a, a small biblical clue that pops up in the epistles. This clue is where we can find that, uh, uh, the answer to the first question, why did Barnabas defend John Mark? And in Colossians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writing, and it's kind of his concluding remarks to the church there in Colossae, he writes this in verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Mark was 
Mark was Barnabas' cousin. And that's the only biblical clue that we have that could tie back in any sort of a way why Barnabas defended John Mark as he did to the point of splitting company and going different directions. So with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, now listen to what Paul says. I'll finish reading the two verses here. Uh, And then in parentheses in my Bible, it says, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Uh, that's That's a pretty good clue as to where Paul and John Mark's relationship had gotten to by the time he wrote the book of Colossians. And then verse 11, And Jesus, who is called Justice, <clears throat> they are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. And so here, the Apostle Paul, writing from prison at that point, in the, the book of Colossians, he's talking about, I just have two Jewish fellows still working with me, and one of them happens to be Barnabas's cousin, this guy named John Mark. So obviously blood's a little thicker than water, and that's why he's defending his cousin as he did. Uh, This passage, like I mentioned, it also affirms that Paul and John Mark had worked through their issues and joined forces for the sake of the gospel. There's two other passages in the New Testament that talk about this reconciliation between Paul and John Mark. The first one is at the end of the book of 2 Timothy, of which we just uh, got done preaching through here recently. In 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says this, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me in ministry. That's a, that's a whole picture that somewhere along the way, and we don't have all the details of that reconciliation, but we have evidence, there's fruit on the vine, that these two guys ironed out their issues. The other one is in the small book of Philemon, Philemon 24, where Mark is listed as one of Paul's companions who send greetings to Philemon. Now, back to the idea and the issue of Peter being in a close connection with Mark. Uh, Peter says this in 1 Peter 5.13 about John Mark. He says, uh, he passes on these greetings from, and it's in quotes, 5.13. He says, from Mark, my son. Peter says, from Mark, my son. That is an indication of how deep a connection these two guys uh, that Peter and John Mark had. He, he called him his son. And the reality is, is that Peter had kind of that same father-son relationship with John Mark that the Apostle Paul had with Timothy, of which we've talked about now over the months. It, it was identical makeup of, of discipling and teaching and training a younger man. It was the, Tim, it was the Titus II uh, version in, in real time, really. Uh, where Titus 2, of course, is a passage where we see the Apostle Paul is telling Titus, you know, that the older women should teach and train the younger women. The older men should teach and train and disciple the younger, younger men. And so these guys are living that out, and Peter takes John Mark under his wing and calls him his son. Now, it's, why that happens, I am not exactly sure. I think it's simply the Lord's providence. But there's a couple of things that these guys had in common, Peter and Mark. They had these, they were both, uh, they both had these moments in their life where they had a crisis of faith. John Mark, I've just read about the one in, in Acts. John Mark had this kind of crisis of faith where he's out proclaiming the, the good news with the Apostle Paul and, and gets to a point and we don't have any reason why he left uh, the Apostle Paul in that first missionary journey. But whatever happened, there was some kind of crisis of faith and he left 
and abandoned them, and it caused this big dust-up uh, sometime later. The Apostle Peter had a similar crisis of faith. If you think about uh, Peter's denial of Christ when Jesus was arrested and tried, uh, so there was kind of a maybe some connection there where these guys, you know, they 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 both had con- gone through the fire, so to speak, of of uh, of being in communion and being in relationship with the Lord and with the Lord's people, and then you know, in that crisis moment, walking away and then being restored. They both had that process happen to them. They were both, I'll put it this way in my notes, for a time they were both runaways in the faith. They were both runaways in the faith. They just left and then, and then for whatever reason God brought them back. And, and we need to, as Christ followers, we need to be open to those realities. That, that there's people out there that, that can be runaways in the faith. Maybe that was you. Maybe you used to be a runaway in the faith. Or, or maybe it was me. I'll tell you it was me at a time, especially in my teenage years. That we all can be tempted to, and some of us can make action on the uh, kind of the abandonment of the faith. But in God's providence, they both return to the Lord as well. And you see in that return, this is a, a, a fruit on the vine of knowing when somebody has returned to the Lord, is this, is both of these fellows, Peter and John Mark, they served the Lord with total abandonment. They served the Lord with total abandonment. Whatever, from that point forward, there's no turning back. There's no, there's no looking back. There's no you know, vacillation of their faith. They served Him with total abandonment. Now, the last component... I wanted to talk about just real briefly, just introducing us to this guy, John Mark. Um, there is a lot out there from church history and our early church fathers in regard to John Mark. Many of the early church fathers uh, wrote about John Mark. I've, I read a bunch up on it uh, recently. Uh, he was known as Mark the Evangelist. He was the bishop, bishop of uh, Bibliopolis and Alexandria, and Alexandria, not Alexandria, Virginia, for those who know your geography. I thought somebody would laugh at that joke. No, Alexandria, uh, Egypt. He was, the, uh, he was the, the bishop there, brought the gospel there. He was Peter's interpreter, and he carefully wrote down everything that Peter had to say in Peter's eyewitness account of Christ. It became the gospel of Mark. And here's an interesting note that I discovered as I was researching this. The Gospel of Mark is the most translated book in the Bible throughout history. Far and beyond any others. There's a lot of, there's a lot of like technical things that, that these guys I was reading about. Uh, the reason why they would put that down, like uh, the, the, uh, the language, it was, it was easy. It was easy to translate was essentially the synopsis of it all. Um, and so uh, scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark has been the most translated book in all of history. John Mark died a martyr in 68 AD. Uh, he had returned to Alexandria, and the pagans of the city resented his gospel message. Uh, the reason why they resented his gospel message is it kind of really it was an affront to their paganism. He came against what was going on in the culture with the gospel of Jesus in a way that got them riled up. 
and, uh, <clears throat> and his efforts to turn Alexandrians away from the worship of these traditional gods. And so he was, in a sense, this uh, culture warrior for the Lord, bringing the gospel, and the way that it ended for John Mark is they placed a rope around his neck and they dragged him through the city till he died. That's how he breathed his last breath for the Lord's sake, was uh, on behalf of the gospel. All right, let's get there. We've got to move quick. Let's dive in and see what John Mark has to say. I'll just go ahead and read the first uh, 11 verses, and we'll uh, go back and take a look at it. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one cry, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, maketh his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him, and all were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and who I am well pleased. Father, uh, we thank you for this passage. Lord, let your word speak to us this morning as we dive in and as we look at it and as we uh, are studying it. Lord, I just would uh, pray as in the way that only you can that your spirit would move amongst us and stir our hearts, Lord, to be closer to you, to be challenged by you and to grow in faith and, and conviction, Lord, about you. And we just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to go back to that first verse. The gospel is all about Jesus. I know it seems like somewhat of a redundant place to start, but as Christ followers, that's where it has to start. And the reason why I put that down there is because in the days we live in, it's easy for the gospel to be about something else that seems to be a more pressing issue in society. But as Christ followers, the gospel is always about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And every story has a great beginning. The other gospel writers, Matthew, he records a ton of lineage, uh, uh, of, yeah, of lineage, Jesus' lineage, his family lineage, uh, and he puts it all down there from this strict Jewish perspective, putting, bolting all the pieces together, and that's with a purpose. It's not without purpose, just so we have to read a bunch of names that we can't pronounce, most of us, me included, probably me in the first of that line. Uh, uh, Luke has a different uh, beginning. John has John. John's emphasis is that Jesus is the Word. Mark here he starts out his beginning as he sees it, and that's with the gospel. The gospel in the beginning, the gospel. Now the ancient Greek word for the gospel, and we all should know this, and maybe we don't, but the ancient Greek word for the gospel means good news. 
Among the Romans, the word gospel meant joyful tidings. And the, and the, Roman, the Romans would send out these runners all throughout the Roman Empire with these joyful tidings. And they would announce these proclamations of the emperor. Uh, whatever it was, whether it was a coming festival, a birthday, a celebration of some kind. And these guys would, would go out and they would be sent out throughout the, all of the Roman world. And they would say, hey, hey, here's some great news. Here's some great news. These reports of these festivals, the word there, the ancient word is evangels. They, where we get our word evangelism, evangelist. And so you have before you on your lap or in front of you on your cell phone, you have God's good news. You have God's joyful tidings. A lot of times we get trapped into this mentality that, that, this, is a, that this is a kind of a drudgery to get through. Or it was, it's just a, it's a list of do's and don'ts. Or for some, perhaps it's, it's a, you know, in the Old Testament, there's just a lot of bloodshed. Hey, I'll tell you, you're right. There's a lot of bloodshed in the Old Testament. There's a lot of bloodshed in the New Testament. Right? And we kind of get focused on it from a certain perspective. We have to always uh, filter those, our own personal perspectives through this, as this is God's good news. And everything that happened in the Old Testament points towards what these guys are writing right here, what we're about to get into. And everything in the New Testament and, and after uh, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection looks back towards this moment right here. So every story has a beginning. It's the good news we have before. So Mark displays the gospel really in three ways there in verse 1. And the first one is it's the good news of Jesus. It's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fully man, born of a woman, he ate food, he drank water, wine. He was real, he was tangible. He experienced joy and pain. He experienced uh, delight and disappointment. He went through every experience that a person can go through. He was fully God and he was fully man. The next one is fully God. The good news of the Son of God. So in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus was fully God. He came from heaven. I love this. Uh, uh, I have this uh, lyrics to the song. And this song is particularly uh, uh, meaningful for me. Because it was one of the first ones I learned to play on the guitar. It was one of the first ones, songs that uh, really made a difference in my life as uh, coming back to the Lord in my return moment. And it was, it's the, the lyrics to the song, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High. Everybody probably over like 50 remembers this song. Uh, we don't sing it too much. Every once in a while we'll jam on it a little bit here and, uh, and love to sing your praises. The words are, He came from heaven to earth to show us the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, and from the grave to the sky. And then what's the last phrase? Lord, I lift your name on high. That is the fully God part. That's the fully God part of Jesus. That's his mission. That's why he came. So it's good news. The Son of, <clears throat> the Son of God is great news. And the good news of the Old Testament, Mark writes about that next phrase. So first you have fully man, then fully God, and here fully qualified. And I wrote fully qualified for one reason. And verse 2 starts out and says, As it is written in the prophets. 
Now, all of, all of Israel was looking for a Messiah, and they had everything that God had to say about the Messiah written down. Most of them had it memorized, or at least uh, mostly memorized. Jesus is the one that's fully qualified here to stand before that sentence and that phrase as it is written in the prophets. It was only Jesus that fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. He was fully qualified. The only one that's fully qualified to be the Messiah. Point number two, the gospel. First, it's all about Jesus. Two, the gospel is a proclamation of the coming king. Let's read on verse two. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before, before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So Mark's gospel dives right into what was said concerning the Messiah, what was said in the, just two of these Old Testament prophecies. And for the, kind of for the sake of context, I really want to read more than just, oftentimes we just read a verse here, a verse there out of the Old Testament. But I think it's important that we understand the context by which this uh, quote that Mark has out of the Old Testament, by which it stands. The first one I want to look at is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, where Isaiah says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway of our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Man, what a proclamation. What a proclamation about the coming Messiah. That, that and, and Mark kind of goes in an area, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but he's saying, hey, there's, God's going to raise up somebody to, to, to say this and to do this. The other passage I wanted to look at uh, is Malachi chapter 3, verses, well, we'll just look at the whole chapter. I was going to say 1 through 7, but that is the whole chapter. Malachi chapter 3 starts off by saying similar a similar phrase, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien." Because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet the days of your fathers, yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, In what way shall we return? Uh, 
about a month ago, I was thinking and praying about actually preaching through Malachi. So this is kind of like fresh on my mind. And the book of Malachi is, is, a, is a short, just a four-chapter you know, uh, prophetic word from the uh, minor prophet Malachi. And it's wrapped around answering a series of these questions. We have two of the questions in chapter 3. The first one is in verse 2, But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? The answer, on our own and in our own righteousness, nobody. Nobody can. It doesn't matter how good you think you are, how good you think you were, how much you compared or how much I compared myself to my neighbor, whatever I think my standard is, whatever you think your standard of goodness and righteousness is, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. On our own and in our own righteousness, nobody can stand. Nobody can stand before the Lord. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need a Savior. Our own goodness is insufficient to satisfy God's requirements. God does not grade on a curve. He grades according to His own standard. And His expectation is perfection. Mankind's sinfulness, by both DNA and decision, keep us from hitting that mark. When I say by DNA and decision, man's sinfulness, I'm meaning that we inherited a sinful nature from Adam and Eve. So going back from, from you know, who's the last one born? Joshua is the last one born here in this room, I would presume. I don't know of any other brand new ones. But he inherited, my grandson inherited that same sinful DNA from Adam and Eve, passed down through all the generations. But there will also be the decision side. So, so I've received that from Adam and Eve. You've received that from Adam and Eve. Hey, guess what? Not as only is it DNA in that sense, but it's also by decision. We've sinned by decision. And any sin separates us from God. So the overarching theme then of this entire kind of collection of books that we call the Bible, in a way can be seen as this. It's an invitation to return. It's an invitation to return to the Lord. Adam and Eve had an opportunity to return to the Lord. Go all the way down. All the way down. Joshua will have an opportunity to return, in a sense, to the Lord. Malachi 3 ends with this question, which will take us right back in to the Gospel of Mark, where it says, in what way then, they says in Malachi 3 at the end, in what way shall we return? In what way shall we return? Mark gives us that answer as he rolls right into talking about John the Baptist. And the third point for today is the gospel is the proclamation of the king's ways. It's a proclamation of the coming king, but it's, it's not just that. It's just not always coming, and we know nothing more than that. The gospel is a proclamation of the king's ways. Mark Chapter 1, verse 4 goes on to say, if you're following along, it says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. 
And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to stoop down and to loosen. I will indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What's the way that we return to the Lord? What's the way that mankind can return to the Lord? It's only one way. It's through repentance. We, we return to the Lord in repentance. That's how, that's how any broken relationship, that's the first step of healing in any broken relationship, is there has to be repentance. We can't return. I, I, couldn't, have, I couldn't have ran around all my teenage years being a hellion and then return to the Lord and say, hey, here I am. You know, here I am. Just go ahead. You know, I'm, I'm good to go with you, God. It's not up to me being good to go with God. The question is, is God good to go with me? And he's not good to go with anybody if they're not repentant for their sins. That's the starting blocks to our faith. That's where it all happens. The way we return to God is to repent and to live a life that demonstrates repentance every day. Now, different people have different ideas when I say that, and so I want to... I want to uh, clarify something. <clears throat> Living a life that demonstrates repentance is not a life where you keep kind of whipping yourself ever, over everything that happened in the past. That's identifying yourself just with the past and, and the way you used to be. And the great news of the gospel is Jesus came not only to save us from our sins, but to give us all a new identity in Him. So we, don't, so we don't have to identify with everything that used to happen. Oh, man, I was so bad. I was this, I was that. And, and that's all we ever think of is just how bad we used to be. Everything that we did, all of that. Demonstrating, and, and, and I like to use this phrase, living a repentant lifestyle is a demonstration that you've t- made the turn. That's what repenting means. That we, we make this turn in a... 180 degree opposite direction away from a sinful lifestyle towards God. So repentance is the way, one of the proclamations of the king's ways. And so is baptism. But baptism doesn't save us. Jesus does the saving. The only thing that we bring to the equation in our salvation is our sin. And Jesus rescues us from our sin and he places you and I on his rescue team. You, you get to be a messenger of Jesus' rescue just as much, probably more so than I do. Right? That's, that's why we have to continue to grow and mature. We have to see how God's gifted us, use those gifts out in the communities that we live in to demonstrate a repentant lifestyle and to spread the good news that God has rescued us. Yesterday, this place was packed wall to wall uh, with people here for a funeral, and I got to um, I got to participate in that funeral as kind of the MC. I didn't give the message. A good friend of mine, Josh Phillips, gave the message, and and uh, the request from the family was a strong salvation message, and uh, and I want to emphasize the fact that yesterday there was a strong salvation message, and uh, uh, and it was kind of preempted a little bit by. Uh, the guy that passed away was a friend of mine, Jake Bartels, and um, Jake's uh, oldest brother passed away at 16 um, in a tragic tractor accident, rolled a tractor on himself, 
And uh, the middle son, Jesse, who some of you know, Jesse Bartels, he used to go to fellowship here, and, uh, and Jesse got up to speak. And I didn't know that Jesse was going to get up and speak. I had a pretty good idea. Maybe he would say something. Uh, but Josh's good gospel message, <laughs> salvation message, was kind of preempted by Jesse with his own salvation message in regard to inviting people into the goodness of God. And, uh, and I sat back here in this chair, nearly in tears, listening to this young guy who's had not an easy life uh, and, and at times not made it easy on himself, uh, but listening to him and how God has changed him. And uh, he lived out yesterday this phrase I have in my notes, highlighted, Jesus rescues us from our sin and places us on his rescue team. That really showed up yesterday. There's a passage that I want to move through quickly that really demonstrates the reality better really than, than any other passage I could have thought of from the progression from lost to preaching Jesus to the lost, and that's out of the book of Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, 9 starts off and says this, that if you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is over all, is rich to all who call upon him. And then the phrase that we've just uh, saw again, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then Paul goes on in verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how then <clears throat> shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And as, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings. There's the phrase for the good news, the gospel, who bring glad tidings of good things. Uh, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed this report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's that progression from lost to reaching the lost. And I'm here to tell you, that's not all on my shoulders. That's not all on the church leadership shoulders. We share that uh, commission simply as God's people. That's, this is for all of us. All of us in some way and in some venue and in some point or many points have this opportunity to, you know, uh, preach, as it were, I'll use that in quotes, to share the gospel, to share the good news. doesn't matter where it is, if it's in school, if it's at work, uh, wherever. Baptism also is a way of the king, back to the gospel of Mark. And baptism, as I said earlier, doesn't save us. It's a public confession of sin and commitment to going in this new direction. And John the Baptist was the one that was called to pave the way for Jesus by preaching the new way and looking at sin and the Savior in a different way. Baptism was already practiced historically by the Jewish community in the form of ceremonial immersions. And uh, typically it was only among Gentiles who wished to become Jews. For Jews in John's day... <clears throat> To submit to baptism was essentially to say this. 
And so think about it in the context that, that all of these people that Mark's writing down were all Jewish, largely. Like 99% of them were Jewish. They were coming from Judea. They were coming from Jerusalem. They were coming out to hear what John the Baptist had to say. But for a Jew to be baptized in a way, if it, if it was culturally mostly seen as a way for Gentiles to become Jewish, then baptism was essentially to say, I confess that I'm as far away from God as a Gentile and that I need to get right with Him. It was kind of the cultural view. And this was a real work of the Holy Spirit in John the Baptist's ministry. As he was proclaiming, paving the way for Jesus, preaching about repentance, all of that was, was socially normal to just be locked into what was happening at the temple. Just be locked into what the, the priests were doing the, and, and all of that. And here you have this guy that looked a, a lot different and had a different message. But baptism, in essence, is a public profession of our faith, and it's a reenactment of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Yes, despite John the Baptist's unorthodox lifestyle, uh, he stayed focused on his life mission, paving the way for the Messiah. And his job, and it's similar to our, and, and our job is the same, is just to point people to Jesus. He, di he didn't take any glory. He just kept pointing. It's like, this is how drastic it is between me and Jesus. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. The lowest of the low servants' job. He was paving the way for the Messiah, pointing people to the Christ. Fourth, and Haley was particularly uh, impressed that I had four points today. A little back uh, in the sound booth humor from earlier this morning. Fourth, the gospel shows the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in complete unity. Look at verse 9 where Mark records, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth, Galilee, and was baptizing and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It's good to note that Jesus was not baptized because he needed cleansing from sin. He was sinless, as John himself understood, and you can footnote that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14. Instead, Jesus was, bap <coughs> was baptized in keeping with this entire mission and on earth to do the will of the Father and to identify with sinful man. That's why Jesus was baptized. So that he could fully identify with humanity. There's incredible irony to this whole event. That irony is kind of wrapped up this way. Is that you have Jesus, uh, uh, a common, unremarkable name, a man from Nazareth, grew up in Nazareth, uh, unremarkable and, and uh, out of the way, and kind of a despised village of Galilee, an unspiritual region. Uh, uh, Galilee was not the Bible belt of Israel. Jerusalem was kind of like, if we could use our American terminology, Jerusalem was the Bible belt of Israel. And so all of these things, he's, he's a, just an average guy from an from a unremarkable place in an unspiritual region of the nation there in the first century. And he was baptized. He was identified as a sinful man. And he was baptized where? In the Jordan. In the Jordan. A kind of a, a <clears throat> you know, definitely a landmark in Israel 
but uh, in many ways, kind of an unpleasant river. You know, it was, it was uh, I don't know if I should say this, maybe I'll just let her fly, but when I was a kid, the Colville River right out here was the dirtiest river around. And it's not as bad as it used to be, Mother. But it's not. It was bad. And the reason why, I'll tell you exactly why it was bad. Because uh, almost half the houses in, the, in, uh, in, in all of these little small bergs, all of their septic went right into the Colville River. Can you believe that's crazy? Nobody thought about that today. But that's the way it used to be. That's the way it used to be. The, the old timers, they said, hey, this stuff has to go away. What better way to make it go away than to put her in the water? And, and I would never, I see people down, you know, swimming, kids in, in the summertime, down here in Addy, swimming in the river. And that, like when I was a kid, that was completely taboo. Nobody swam in the Culver River. The Jordan, in a sense, was kind of like this, you know, uh, not exactly clean, you know, flowing water. But you compare all of these common and ordinary details of, of, the, of the physical scene to this list, the heavens parting. Heaven opened up wide for this event. The ancient Greek phrase there is that the heavens were tore in two. Kind of like the father just like reached down and, and somehow like supernaturally said, hey, uh, move everything out of the way. We're going to get a, you know, a real tight look at what's going on here. We're going to get an in-person look at what's going on. That's why the Greek phrase is so adamant about the heavens being torn in two. Then you have the spirit descending, the heavens parting, the spirit descending. The spirit of God was present. And not only was the spirit of God present, but the Spirit of God was discernible. It was, an, it was an obvious, obvious act of the Spirit of God to descend on the situation. And he descended like a dove. Luke three twenty two puts it like this. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. You don't miss that. It's not mysterious. So you have the heavens parting, the Spirit descending... You also then have the voice coming from heaven. And it's rare in the Bible where we read that God speaks audibly from heaven. But this is one of those glorious occasions where not only God was God the Father looking down and watching His Son, but then He spoke to the situation. And He says, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And what could be a more glorious than that? than to have the Father, God the Father praise and affirm the Son publicly. I will uh, pause on that note. And if somebody would like to get the kids that are downstairs, we're winding down here before we start communion. Uh, there is, this is probably one of the greatest examples in all of the Bible for fathers, for fathers to speak to their sons. This to me is the example, like bar none, I know we have lot, I can give you lots of biblical examples where fathers spoke to their sons about their future and, and proclaimed them into manhood. And, and uh, we've lost that culturally. Like every culture in the world <laughs> through history has had some sort of a proclamation of, of son, you're now a man. You know, young lady, you're, you're now a woman. 
we've kind of lost that, and I believe that it's up to us as Christ followers. And I will say that based on this verse alone, but I could give you a ton of more references. That as Christ followers, we're missing something if we don't do this, if we don't follow this example. The Father was well pleased with the Son, and this is a proclamation uh, saying, Jesus, you're on target, you're on track, you're doing exactly what was said needed to be done. You're doing, uh, well, we read in the book of Ephesians, this, this plan was in action before time began. But it's a public proclamation, a public affirmation of our boys. And I'll tell you what, uh, boys in our society are missing that. I work with these guys every day through the week. And I can tell you what boys on our team are, are struggling because dad's not affirming them to become a man. And I can tell you exactly what boys are. I can tell you exactly what boys are, are with it and they understand and they got dad right behind them cheering them on and bringing correction and guidance and coaching them into life. Like, I'm really, you can tell I'm really passionate about this point alone. Uh, it's something that's missed. But we don't want to miss it in the church. We don't want to miss this example. We don't, we don't, we don't want to go the cultural way of, with this and not affirm our young people into adulthood. What better way is there for a son to kick off his ministry than to have his father give the blessing? What better way is there for a son to kick off his ministry than to have the father give the blessing? What an example, thank you, to the family coming up and grandpa praying for Haley. That's one of those affirming moments. That's why we celebrate those things that, that, that are not necessarily intrinsic ministry in the church, but, but, they're, but they are in a sense that, that Haley has a desire to have let the Lord use her gifting and her hard work and her study, and uh, the fact that now she can get in an airplane and go way faster than 60. She wants God to use that in her life. And Daniel and Allison and Grandma and Grandpa to come and affirm that, all of us to be praying for her. It's a beautiful thing. We don't want to miss those things. Uh, and uh, I'll leave it alone. You guys get the point. I want to close with this. So far in just 11 verses of the Gospel of Mark, we've seen kind of four witnesses, each testifying to the identity of who Jesus is. Mark, saying that Jesus is the Son of God. The prophet, saying that Jesus is the Lord. John the Baptist, saying that Jesus was the one uh, after me who is mightier than I. And you see the Father Say Jesus is the beloved Son. I suppose you could throw a fifth one in there uh, that you have the Spirit descending upon Him as an obvious uh, demonstration that this is the Messiah, that this is the one that is going to deal with sin. It's not going to. The word doesn't. You know, I'm going to put it this way. A lot of the social expectations in that day was the Messiah would deal with all the social issues. The social issues are dealt with by dealing with sin, and that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to deal with sin. Jesus came to give an answer and a solution to the one thing that we can't uh, come up with, and that's how do we deal 
with sin. What more evidence do we need? This is the son that we celebrate, the son that we honor, the son that we worship, and it's the son that we remember as we take communion. And on that, I'll ask David to come on up as David leads us in communion. If this, if this is your first time joining us for communion, we always ask the older children from downstairs to come up and join the families because we feel it's really important that they see all of us in the body as we honor our Lord and Savior through communion and that it be a family event. So that's why we have the little pause there. The men are passing out the elements. If you would hold them, we'll take them together. And uh, Mark was talking early in his message about reconciliation. And that really is what we're celebrating, isn't it? Communion is about the path of reconciliation because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And he did so willingly. I don't think there's any, any more stark example of that than what's recorded in Luke. It says, And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostle with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. But I say to you, I shall never again eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. And as I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And then this stark statement. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him. And yet, he served the first communion. He knew he was going to betray him, but yet he desired reconciliation. And that really kind of sums up what Jesus was all about. That sums up why we have communion. Because it was that determination, it was that focus on our salvation 
that led him to the cross, that led him to give his life. That's why we have communion. Because he did provide that path. And we are reconciled with the Father. Our sins are taken away. Scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, your sins will be no more. And if you think about it, that's the only direction in the compass that that works. If you start going dead east, you will never stop going east. You will never find west. As far as the east is from the west, your sins are no more. Wow. What a blessing. What a blessing. What a savior we have. What a redeemer. A friend that sticks closer than a brother. Let's take a few minutes. Push aside the activities of the day and the plans for tomorrow. Focus on Jesus, the lover of your soul. Thank him for what he's done for you. Thank you. Thank him for what he's doing in your life. Thank him for his sacrifice.